Hi everybody, welcome to this edition of GNR on IoT. Uh, my name is Gaurav, I'm joining you from Ottawa, Canada and with me is my friend and colleague Ravi Subramanian. Ravi. Hello everybody, welcome to our session two of our GNR podcast. Looking forward to communicating with you on this forum. Awesome. So Ravi, good feedback from uh, the last conversation we had. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing which which we did hear from some of our listeners was there are some elements of open and closed systems that we should talk more about. Um, mm -hmm. One, I think we we lost sight of, I would say, you know, we, we covered quite a bit there, but the one particular one I feel we can talk about more and just based on your experience in the industry, I'm sure there's a lot of insights we can, we can pull from there and our audience can benefit from is uh, platforms like uh, say Rockwell Automation for the lack of any other example I'm just saying you know it's not about uh, them in particular but there's many uh, vendor specific vendor defined uh, platforms now do they fit the definition of a closed system um, because they do have you know extensions the ability to plug into other systems etc how should how should one see those systems so if you don't mind just ex just first talking about what those systems are about why people use them and then just uh, put them in the context of closed systems versus open systems. Yeah. Yeah, most of these uh, systems, they they have an anchor product, right? In the, in the case of Rockwell, obviously, they're, um, they're Allen Bradley PLC. That was their anchor product, right? And that's kind of like where they hung their hats around and then they extended that to controllers. And then, then what they did was, okay, now that we're good at this, why don't we kind of like enhance our ecosystem and somewhat make it closed, meaning like... Um, if you're in our ecosystem, you have to support like a particular protocol, right? And will and then they also went ahead and uh, purchased a stake with PTC, if you remember uh, PTC, uh, where, which basically is does ThingWorks and uh, Kepware, for example, which does drivers to talk to different systems. So I think that for them was a strategic alliance with the, with them, where they said, okay, we'll we'll kind of like um, have our software, for example, talk to the the factory talk ecosystem that. Uh, that PTC has, uh, that way we can we can kind of communicate with the cloud. So when a customer comes to our Rockwell and says, "I want to do this," they'll say, "Yes, of course you you can use our controller or you can use our PLC and you can communicate to your own system using open open protocols." But we have our own system that is already available. You can just purchase it from us, and we make it easy. We make it plug and play that you can communicate, right? So what it ha basically happens is like you kind of like lock them into that ecosystem and make it really difficult for um, talking to systems outside of it. Meaning like it's in some cases prohibitively costly to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So you would rather say that, you know what, let's sustain that ecosystem because it's much more easier for me. I have one throat to choke, so to speak, and uh, it's so much uh, convenient for me to do that, right? But over time, are you getting the best experience is the question, right? We talked about it last week where if you put all your eggs in one basket, are you getting the best features that you can, if you will, versus like trying to choose the best players in each of the each of the different things that you need and, and uh, get them together or like open protocols and open systems. So that's um, that's one example. Of, of course, there are many other examples, but um, but that's kind of like what I think. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think uh, as you mentioned in your uh, in your response, Ravi, the um, the starting point is for the vendor is to try and contain the experience and with contain I mean they want to keep it predictable they want to keep it 
high value it, customers are obviously making very heavy investments and some of the terms that you mentioned i just want to clarify for our audience uh, plcs and uh, some other components these are specific to uh, industrial iot but we are using that just as a reference point i'm sure for some other industries there might be other components but strategy wise as you pointed out uh, vendors will make their own collaborations vendors will give you a very decent entry point and to be able to contain that within their own known boundaries of performance perhaps and what they might see as the best way to do uh, business is how they they define it they restrict it they are obviously opinionated about this thing because it's <laughs> their own baby if you will um but that is what kills uh, some of the choice that we uh, we talked about in the last episode and yeah i would encourage people who who have not uh, who've not had the chance yet to listen to the first episode i would love for for them to you know go go check that out and uh, just uh, get a better sense of what they lose or stand to gain if they choose to keep their minds open and and choose to bring in technologies compose an architecture which is consisting of best of breed technologies uh, including around technologies which enable certain protocols mqtt being one and several others excellent so ravi this i think is a is a good segue also into another topic i i believe is relevant and very timely also so july 5th i believe or 7th i think uh, the european parliament they passed um, an act and that act um uh, was a long time coming there was a lot of conversations for the last uh, several years now around uh, particularly large cloud computing vendors who um were facing antitrust anti competitive practice um you know lawsuits plus complaints in in the european context now europe as we know is 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 known to talk about these issues and they they don't um, hold back on on calling out uh, what they feel might be uh, disruptive practices or or anti um, competitive practices etc and they also seem to lead the way when it comes to privacy and other such regulations so gdpr for example was was one such example back in 2018 which was followed up by ccpa in the us and that template has now been set how successful is it what's what's the objectives how many people have been fined that data is available on the on the uh, public internet of course but coming back to what they did um in 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 a, a couple of weeks back here or week or so back here was to to begin to question the practice of bundling when it comes to pricing and they called out vendors um and they called out the practice that by bundling multiple services and giving customers a bundled price you are creating um challenges and entry barriers for companies which provide specialized software so as an example let's let's talk about say a hyperscale company um let's say microsoft and the hyperscale company has a computing service they have a database they have a broker they have serverless computing they have a bunch of things perhaps a list which can run into the hundreds and in there there will be components which are enabling technologies and those enabling technologies for selling their whole ecosystem is what either appears as a very very small price item because that's obviously been leveraged and um, uh, cost leveraged against all the other stuff they are selling in the account or what in at least in the american context we say you know throw it in so they they tend to you know throw it in and say okay don't worry about it you know you can you can use this service because you know there's so much else that you're buying 
Now, this is not discounting. This is bundling, which is we'll sell you these 10 things, but what customers don't tend to realize, and that's what the regulators in Europe are shining a light on, is that by bundling, you're doing two things. One, you are getting into an ecosystem where these services tend to only talk to their branded services. So you will not have an option as a customer to plug one component out and bring another component in. And the second thing which is happening is by doing this bundling, the specialized services which are being brought together by this obviously rather large corporation, you are, you are putting other businesses uh, you know, out of their own expertise and out of their own business by not being able to now sell to these enterprises because this bundling is too hard to break. So commercially, they're at a disadvantage. Technically, you've closed all doors uh, to them. And the European uh, Parliament has raised that point. And uh, we'll see what kind of laws come out of that resolution. Um, but it, it'll be interesting to see how, how that evolves. Um, any, any thoughts, feedback in, uh, on this, Ravi? Yeah. Yeah, definitely uh, bundling is something that uh, American consumers are very, very used to. Right. I mean, a lot of the um, like, OK, the triple play, for example. Right. I mean, who, everybody knows that. Right. So it's like you get three services for one. It's uh, in some cases a discounted price. And uh, but in the fine print, you can you can have that price only if you have all of these three services. Now, if you look at if you look at the feature functionality of each of those services, are you getting the best that you want? Oh, maybe maybe I, I'm getting all these features. I really don't care about that. But just because I want that, that bundle pricing, I'm like forced to get all those features. Now, do I have the best experience? Probably not, right? If I got the individual services separately where I do my own research and say, I, I want this from them and this from them and that from them, would that be the best experience for the customer? Absolutely, because now I actually chose the one that I want and then I chose the feature functionality that, uh, that I choose uh, that's best for me, right? A lot of companies have actually started thinking, realizing that, and then they have, start, they have started to kind of like say, you know what, we understand that we, we put too many features, <laughs> right, in, uh, in the product, and we know that you don't like all the features. Now, we are giving you the option to kind of like choose your own pricing, for example, right? You choose whatever features you want, and then the pricing is based on that, as opposed to saying that I'll bundle everything together because it's easy for me to manage, right? And then uh, you're left with uh, what what we provide to you, right? So it's it's very interesting. It's very interesting that um, you know I'm not sure if like such a regulation will fly in the U.S. or not, right? Because you know companies have too much control. But I think like that is definitely a something that the U.S. will be watching, or the consumers in the U.S. will be watching, and then like they'll be like, you know what? If they if European consumers can get that, right? And then there are laws strictly protecting them, then we also need something like that. Very similar to GDPR, right? I mean, GDPR passed in, in, uh, in Europe. Nobody mm -hmm. thought that the you know, US will follow suit. Well, mm -hmm. we're not quite there yet, but I, I think we have much farther along than where we were um, even like two, three years ago, right? So I would say, yes, uh, from a consumer perspective, bundling is not quite in their best interest, even if it saves a little buck here and there initially, but in the longer run, it's like they need to choose. <laughs> right, right. And by the way, um, I, I was struggling to remember what the act is called. It's called the Digital Markets Act. And uh, the, the, what was approved by the EU lawmakers on July 4th, I believe, was uh, not resolutions, but these are laws approved by them. So how do they, they, they come into being, we'll see. But um, it's interesting, right? You, you, you're using the word consumers. Uh, I'm sure it applies to consumers, but 
how this got into my radar was an article on the Wall Street Journal where in the Wall Street Journal, they are saying that how the chief information officers and corporate tech leaders will have now the additional burden to mix and match software from a range of tech vendors, right? Um, now, is it a burden? Is it an opportunity? One has to wonder, but you know, clearly it opens up the market. And Europe has got it, its own uh, you know, business priorities, business uh, needs, plus the data sovereignty that comes with operating your workloads uh, in Germany for, uh, excuse me, in Europe in general and for uh, customers in Europe, it comes with its own nuance. So I doubt they can just walk away as in the big players can simply walk away. They will have to comply. They'll have to figure out a way to be able to do this. And once that begins to happen, the market opens up, you know, players um, which specialize in specific areas, they don't have to simply rely on partnering with that big guy, but they can be a genuine competition in specific areas of specialization and expertise, whether, whether it comes to um, edge equipment or software like the, the, like the kind that uh, the company that you and I work for uh, sells in the market, Ravi. So there's a fair chance for everybody to innovate um, and, and hyper-specialize in their own capabilities. And then the regulators are saying that we want you to do this for two reasons. One, for the customers to not get locked in uh, and be subject to you know, this particular vendor's choice out in the future to, you know, not support a certain technology, for example, where do you go then? And as we, as we both know, right, the technology that large corporates are buying, that's being used to build, you know, life-saving systems, mission-critical systems. So by, by making sure that you're not getting locked into a system, the, the, the risk that comes with being dependent on one vendor entirely for a for a critical service that's also being reduced. So I think they are pr thinking pretty holistically here, which which I which I pretty uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with um, personally. It's it's interesting to see how far that impact will go. So it's I think it's not a news that's been picked up or being talked about quite a lot, and you know, not hard to understand um, why that is, but. Um, we, we will see the impact in the coming, uh, I, I should say, not too long in the future, we should see the impact. Yeah, Ooh. what about these uh, American companies that do business in Europe, right? If they are forced to comply with those laws, yeah. what will that, how will that impact their business strategies in the US? Now, will they start applying some of those things to the US? So will the US consumers benefit from this or the corporations benefit from this indirectly because the, the law came about in, in Europe and then companies are forced to comply with that, then they might see the side effects happy if, I'm, happy, happy if it may in, mm. uh, in the US as well or North America, right? That will be interesting to see if there is any um, si happy side effects of that here. Agreed, agreed. That, yeah. That's true. Now, the other element of, uh, <laughs> um, I, I mentioned this uh, when I was describing the potential impact it will have on the market. Um, when when a business is building their applications, their workflows, their um, experience, they are, if they choose to rely on one particular vendor, the risk of that vendor choosing to abandon critical components, critical, critical components of that experience, of that journey, that might hurt them, right? And one will, you know, wonder if a company like, you know, Microsoft or Google or AWS for that matter will simply not support a service out in the future. Um, it, it may not 
feel they would do it, but <laughs> every few days you see an example of that happening. And those examples come at you out of nowhere, they hurt your strategy. And one example which, which we came across thanks to one of our uh, prospects who's, who's, uh, who's you know, talking to us only because you know, Microsoft is choosing to um, not support one critical component of their um, Azure stack uh, service. So, you know, they, they go out there, they will build a particular product line. And at some point, of course, business drivers are important, but imagine the plight of the customers who are choosing to build experiences, mission critical business uh, components on top of those. So this is where it begins to get tricky. And this, this idea of abandoning a software or a particular capability that you put out there and same thing with, for example, uh, the message site software from, from IBM, which was introduced a few years ago, and it's going end of life uh, quite soon. Now, end of life happens all the time, end of support happens all the time. All we are reminding our listeners is that these are elements to be factored in. And if yeah. you are only yeah. relying on one particular closed um, vendor ecosystem, uh, this abandonware problem can creep yeah. in. So it's not a it's not a factor of who's big, who's small uh, in terms of the size of business. Things can change, so that that should yeah. be factored into their strategy, yeah. and and yeah. it shouldn't you know yeah. shock or surprise. Um, Absolutely, and and what we see with these big companies is that they're in a constant mode of experimentation, right? I mean, like Microsoft is constantly continuing to experiment on new services, new things that they're doing, and they obviously bet on certain things and they put it on public preview with the intention of uh, launching it and then suddenly they discover something, right? Uh, they they have like a, a key customer that adopts it and then like, uh, then they feel that like it's not scalable, right? And then they they decide to drop it, right? And uh, in some cases they have a plan to kind of get the customer over to a different piece of software in other cases they don't, right? So potentially that uh, is an opportunity for other companies to come in and say, I can fill that void, right? or I can, I can kind of like um, help you, right? unless that vendor has been locked into the Microsoft ecosystem. That's where I think it gets detrimental, right? You cannot have the service, but guess what? You're locked into our ecosystem, and so you cannot go to anybody else. That would be the kind of like the absolute worst situation. So Ravi, I remember as a consumer several years ago, um, I don't know why we keep coming back to Microsoft, you're not, <laughs> we're not, we're not, we don't have them in our uh, sort of... We, we, um, we love Microsoft, by the way. Uh, we, we, yeah, yeah, sure. But all I'm saying is that, you know, we, we keep talking about such broad examples and <laughs> keep coming back to Microsoft. I promise we'll pick another vendor <laughs> in, a, in a few minutes here. But um, I was thinking back to the situation I found myself in a few years ago when Microsoft, when they launched uh, OneDrive early on, it was free to consumers. I, I forget how long back this was, but... Uh, and I might be wrong about the numbers here, but let's bear with me here as I as I jog my memory. So they were offering around I don't know 10 GBs of free online storage uh, forever for everybody who was signing up for OneDrive. Oh, and then I was impressed. You know, this was early days. I don't think Box.com or Dropbox were that popular uh, that long back. So a few years ago, uh, eight eight nine years ago perhaps. And then one day you find out that they are sending you an email to say, Hey guys, I, we 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 messed up in our projections. And that's, that was the essence of the message they gave you, which is we felt that we can sustain the number of people who would sign up for this capacity, but no sorry. So we're gonna turn 
the dial down and give you only one GB of free storage. So this is a company which went wrong with their math, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps couldn't figure how, how many people will sign up, how frequently are they going to use it. But they figured out they are better off cutting it down. And the only way out they give you is that, hey, we're going to bring this down to one GB in 30 days. So do hell with all the other data that you uploaded. So now you are left to figure out a solution. Now, this is me as a consumer. It's a free service. Of course, this can happen. But again, an example, size is no factor. You know, it's it's for you to protect your interests yeah. Um, yeah, as a consumer, yeah, yeah. as a corporation, yeah. um, as an IT business. So yeah, something to keep in mind. It, the examples are <laughs> aplenty. So. Yeah, I remember... Um headcat.gov right or obamacare as it's called the first time the site went up they couldn't um, predict how many users are going to be using it and then it just crashed and then they they kind of like put a patch and then it crashed again so it's like they didn't expect these many people to log on to it like in such short time right it's like it's always hard to and you would think that they'll be able to model these things but uh, but i guess it's not <laughs> yeah always it's, the case. It's, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's and it's not a factor of. Okay, I, I don't even know what 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 all to factor in, but it's not predictable. That's that's all I can say. And you need to be ready for these kind of disruptions. These are not the kind of disruptions you want in or with your business, but they happen. Right. Um, policies right. change, product roadmaps change, companies get acquired, things get shut down, stuff happens. But what's your strategy to be able to? Well, a. What was your strategy when you built your IT tech stack? How are you continuously evaluating all that might change? What happens when this one critical component um, becomes, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, too important to lose? Uh, do you want to be in that place where one day, you know, that company is caught in a huge, you know, data leak or a scandal for that matter, right? And what's your, what, what is that going to do to the performance of your IT systems and your, uh, the, your business reputation and things like that? There's so much to factor in here. All right, very cool. Ravi, I think this was uh, pretty helpful. Now, what I would love to do, and hopefully continue this kind of um, tradition in in our podcast uh, episodes moving forward, is to just on our personal side, what is it that you noticed since the last time we spoke, which really impressed you, blew your mind away, was, was fascinating for you? Would you like to share that with us? Doesn't have to really specifically do with um, uh, the topic of, of the podcast today, but generally speaking around yeah. IOT, around technology, anything which might have yeah. super impressed you. Yeah, one thing that was like an aha moment for me or quite revealing for me is the, the fact that like certain industries have like a dinosaur sentiment to them, like meaning like uh, oil and gas, for example, right? It's kind of like set in like the 90s or like it's really archaic. Uh, but when I did some research on, on like, a, like a page that I was trying to put together, I was amazed at how much digitization they've kind of like uh, employed as early as the 90s, meaning like they had a lot of data at their disposal. It's just that they didn't know what to do with the data because there wasn't any technology that could take it and do anything like like intelligent with it, right? It's only recently because of all the technological innovations and the availability of Industry 4.0 and AI ML that they have been actually able to like do anything with it. So it's it's quite interesting that um, you've had like, you know, over time, you've had like these technologies that did have like the data or that could potentially turn into insights, but they weren't quite ready for uh, for adopting it. So that was insightful for me. Awesome. And 
yeah, let me let me also share what I found fascinating, and that's what actually triggered the thought that you know maybe I should share mine and also ask ask yours. So, um, iOS 16 is in is in preview or maybe what it's called beta, one of those two modes. It was released at the Worldwide Developer Conference um, a couple of months back, I guess. And there are there's a preview of features in iOS 16. The one feature I I came across was this particular feature I came across was where using a particular mount. So from a company called Belkin, and I'm guessing they will have more of such mounts coming up. That mounts uses the magnet, which is built into the the, the rear of the um, the iPhones, the newer iPhones. Mm-hmm. It connects with the magnet, and you can then simply mount it on top of your MacBook or your whatever screen you have. And what it does, Ravi, is fascinating. So you can use the rear cameras now to capture what's on your desk. So imagine drawing a picture or doodling and I want you on the other side on the video conference with me to be able to see what I'm doing. Now, it can always happen and you could hack your way around, you know, installing a tripod or something, but something smart which they're doing just based on the technical capability that the phone has or the software that you use has. And I'm going to talk about what that software is, which helps you stream this kind of uh, visual. The, the, The camera is creating a perfect sort of 16 is to nine kind of a resolution from whatever is on, on the desk. So the camera is at an angle, but still it's able to capture exactly what's on your desk and project it as a two dimensional image in front of you. So the feature they're using is the wide angle camera, which is not on all iPhones. So I don't recall where the cutoff might be, but my guess is iPhone 11 or 12 is where they started actually doing a widescreen. And the amount of real estate you can capture in in widescreen uh, shot. So you, if you pick up an iPhone and you dial to what's called 0.5x on the dial, you get a, a, a different perspective on where you're standing. You see pretty wide, and that camera feature is now being used to capture what's on your desk. So the phone is mounted on top of your screen, but it's able to capture what's on your desk. Flip it. So do what do whatever processing is necessary to flip all that content. So it's not backwards. It's not a mirror image and square it off in a sense that it has scanned and in real time it's able to shift that image at an angle and help you transmit that onto the other side. The catch is that it's a FaceTime meeting. Now FaceTime is not what you and I use for our work collaboration. It's not a tool, I'm, perhaps it can be, uh, but we lean on say Zoom or some other uh, enterprise uh, prevalent uh, tool set. So here, Apple, using an iPhone, using or rather insisting on <laughs> a certified custom-built Belkin mount and then asking you or restricting you to using FaceTime for this feature. They are owning the experience. They are enabling a feature which is hard to create any other which way. And mm-hmm. now I'm able to do work which is seamless all I have is this one iPhone, which was sitting on my desk doing nothing. And now it's suddenly it's my webcam, but not just a webcam, but it's also doing uh, screen capture at an angle, which is extremely hard to achieve. Um, you know, so I found that fascinating that they've thought through a, how did they find that requirement? Second, by giving me a solid reason here, they're, they're, they're giving me people who, ha- who don't, who have not got the, the newer version of an iPhone to get to that. And then also right. buy this Belkin hardware. 
exactly. and you know exactly. just just begin to use this but, but they're uh, continuing to lock so them into their ecosystem let's right, let's hope right. that they make it available with other applications as well yeah 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 one would hope and that's again we came back to the topic of lock-in again although there is this huge fascinating experience so that's where somewhere you know a line needs to be drawn between you know what you see as lock-in versus uh, synergies and so on and so forth so i think education objective evaluation is is necessary for for you to look at uh, what's possible with all these technologies all right, I think it's a good place to stop. Ravi, any final thoughts from you before we close? And um, no, I think I think we um, we started off yeah. with the lock-in. We finished with the lock-in. I think it's a great way to start and stop this topic. So Excellent. I think uh, I want to thank our viewers uh, or listeners rather for listening in, and please continue to support us so we can come up with more content for you. Awesome, thank you, Ravi. Appreciate your time, and thank you, everybody. We'll we'll publish this. Uh, on on popular podcast platforms and i think for now the only way for us to get your feedback and and hear from you is via linkedin so please keep doing that and in the coming days we'll we'll find a way to also enable more channels to gather feedback and keep in touch with you thanks everybody for listening in